What is it that Paul most longs for God to do in the lives of those believers? And you and I live in troubled days, frankly, all the days on this earth uh, since the fall have been troubled days. And what God's people need is to be recalibrated. Our focus gets uh, set on the details of our daily lives, uh, the highs and lows, the troubles, the, the concerns, the fears, the anxieties, the needs, right? And they occupy our attention, often robbing us of the joy that we should have as believers. God's perfecting us in the midst of those circumstances for sure. He's creating opportunities for us by way of being a testimony and, and to have a witness for him. There's all kinds of things that God is doing in particular and intimate ways in our lives. But what you see in the Apostle Paul as that loving shepherd in in his prayer life is he wants them to look up and look out as to the big picture. What is it that God ultimately is seeking to accomplish in their lives? And this morning, I trust our time in the world will be an encouragement to you as we study this prayer and the implications of it to understand the big picture today. To look up, to look out, and to find your hope and your confidence and your courage in the promise of what God intends to do in the life of a believer. And so my hope is that you'll be blessed and encouraged. It might be the case that you're even convicted, but that's okay, right? We all need some conviction in our life so that we can see those areas that we can aspire uh, even more faithfully to godliness and, and righteousness. And so this is such an occasion. And Paul authors this epistle to the Colossian church. Paul had not been to Colossae. Colossae is one of the three major cities in the land of Turkey that historically Paul had uh, seen ministry uh, accomplished through his disciples. Paul was based in the city of Ephesus for three years. And while there, one of those men from Colossae, who he had influenced and discipled named Epaphras, had gone back and planted this church in Colossae. Paul, in his own ministry and the season of life, finds himself in prison in Rome as he writes this. And he has just received a report from Epaphras as to how the church is doing, and there's much that's positive that he reports on, but he also knows that this church is under threat. There are heresies, there are false teachings that are uh, being uh, taught and propounded there in the city of Colossae that might creep into the church. And so Paul wants to remind uh, this congregation of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, all that he is, and all that he has done on our behalf, that they might not fall into this temptation of false teaching. And so as we come to this text, we're mindful that this loving pastor has a watchful eye on his congregation. And he wants them to have the confidence in Christ's sufficiency. So read with me as we come to Colossians chapter 1, this portion of his prayer. In verse 9, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
In this portion of Paul's prayer, we see outlined very clearly six characteristics of a Christ-knowing walk. What does it mean to know Christ, the truth about Christ, the truth of what he has accomplished on our behalf? It should produce in our lives these characteristics. And these characteristics are, are ways that, that Paul illustrates really the same reality, that knowing Christ should produce in us a walk that reflects his heart, his character, his love for others, and the same kind of life that imitates the Father. He begins here by saying, for this reason also, what is the reason that Paul is praying for them? Well, he has just heard the report from Epaphras. Let's go back and and read the report. Beginning in verse 2, it says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, Here it is. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, and because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth." Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. What's Paul saying? We have received this remarkable report of your faithfulness, of your love for Christ, your commitment to him. And you are bearing fruit, and you are increasing, and we're praying for you. But now he focuses his prayer life in response to this report from Epaphras and saying, this is how we are praying for you. This is what it means when he says, for this reason, this wonderful testimony of your obedience and faith in Christ. This favorable report was an encouragement to Paul and to those who are with him there in Rome. Where he says here that since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. It's interesting to note here uh, the emphasis in Scripture on unceasing prayer. And Paul is certainly characterized by that. I have a hard time when I read the statements of Paul talking about unceasing prayer because I recognize that rarely characterizes my own prayer life. And yet we are called to be faithful, to be diligent, to be determined. And Paul saying of himself, this is my commitment to you. And the idea here is There's a determination to intercede on behalf of God's people. Have you ever had the experience of someone who tells you they pray for you every day? You're usually humbled, right, and grateful, but you're also convicted. And what you rarely want to confess is that you don't pray for them every day, like they pray for you, right? And that often is our experience, and that might be our response as we hear the testimony of Paul here and saying, wow, have I been faithful to pray for those in my life, fellow believers who have been rescued and redeemed, and that I have the ministry of intercession on their behalf. John MacArthur, in looking at this text, says this about the Apostle Paul. He says, his love for God led him to seek unbroken communion with him. His love for people drove him to unceasing prayer on their behalf. Prayer is one of the greatest ministries that we can have in the life of others. 
You may not be able to meet a physical need or give as generously as you'd like to. You may not be able to help them when they face trials such as chronic pain or health issues. You may not be able to uh, change their circumstances, even the consequences of their own sinful behavior. But what can you do? And what should you do? That's right. We should pray. And it's not a prayer of discouragement or defeat. It's a prayer that has faith and confidence undergirding it in the promises of God of what he can and will do in the life of believers. And so we come into his presence with boldness, with confidence, interceding on their behalf. And by the way, who do we imitate as we intercede for others? That's right. We're told, obviously, in the book of Hebrews that Christ, seated at the right hand of God, intercedes on our behalf. And we also know from the testimony of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is at work interceding, uttering prayers, right, when we don't even know how to pray. And so when we come to prayer, unceasing prayer, prayers of intercession, we're joining with the members of the Godhead in interceding on one another's behalf. Your prayers don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be beautiful or well-worded. They just have to be sincere. And they should be consistent and diligent. But when we pray, we join with the Spirit, we, we join with the Son, interceding with the Father on the behalf of His purposes being accomplished in the lives of the saints. What is Paul's prayer? He goes on to say, my prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let's take a moment to consider what he's saying here. He's saying that those in Colossae, those who are members of the church, those who are bearing fruit of righteousness and increasing in obedience, those who evidence real fruit of saving faith, still need to be filled. And the idea of filling is not some necessarily a secondary experience or, or extra blessing of the Spirit. It is the resident presence of the Spirit of God accomplishing what God has promised to perfect. And this filled up idea has the, the connotation of being made complete. Complete as to what? What is the ultimate aim for our lives? To be godly, to be like Christ, to reflect the character of God in our lives. Has anybody here today arrived at that perfect state? Go ahead, stand up. We'd love to meet you, actually. (laughs) None of us have, right? But isn't this the promise? Philippians 1 tells us that there will be an ultimate day when the work that was begun in us will be made complete. And between now and then, and that is a reference to the future completion where we have a resurrected body and sin will no longer be part of the flesh and temptation for us. But that body will also meet what God has been doing in the inner man, of perfecting us day by day by day to become more and more like his beloved son. And so what Paul's saying here is the main thing that I pray for is that God will continue to fill you up, to complete that work of producing godliness in your life. Another way to see it, and this is really the way he frames it here, is to be filled up completely so that you are fully controlled by truth. Not lies, not errors, 
not heresies, that might tempt you to, to pursue godliness in the flesh or in your own strength or by human effort, but you do this through the power of God's word, enabled by the power of his spirit, and encouraged and supported by the strength of God's people. And so what he's saying here is it isn't just any filling to godliness, it's a filling or being made complete in a way that's consistent with the truth that has been revealed to you or to us. This is important, right? We live in a world where there's all kinds of false teaching, false gospels, all kinds of pathways to spirituality and even godliness. What Paul's prayer is, is yes, God, complete that work by filling them up, but do that in accord with truth, with the true knowledge of who you are, who your son is, and what you've accomplished on our behalfs. And he illustrates this, the idea of true knowledge, with these two phrases, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. What is wisdom? Wisdom is truth and practice. It's taking the truth, and as illustrated in Scripture, what that looks like as being lived out in obedience. So it's not just knowledge, general knowledge. It's not just some cognitive awareness of, of what truth principles are in Scripture, but it's truth that transforms into a life that lives that truth out. That's spiritual wisdom. And that understanding is given to us by God himself. The idea there is that there would be a comprehension, a fuller comprehension of the truth of God's word. This is not new in Paul's writings. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. I thank my God always concerning you. Here he's praying for the Corinthians, and, and there's a similarity in his prayer. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. In Ephesians 1, 17, he says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In Philippians 1.9, he writes, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And then later in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What is Paul's emphasis when he talks about true knowledge? It's a true knowledge as to who Christ is, his person and work on our behalf. Every major cult is characterized by one thing. It's a modification or a falsification of their teaching about the person of Christ. And if you don't get that correct, if your Christology is not biblical, if it's not complete, if it's not full, if it's not represented of the truth of what we see in Scripture, it will lead to, in most occasions, a man-centered approach that is going to rob from God the glory that he alone deserves for the perfecting work that he can accomplish in our lives. We can't take credit for our salvation, can we? It's he who regenerates, it's he who convicts, it's he who grants faith to repentance, it's he who forgives. 
Yes, we have the personal experience of responding to that. We have a duty and responsibility to respond to that. But it's God who initiates. And that's what Paul's saying here about the work of sanctification. It's God who initiates that. And you might work really hard to perfect yourself in godliness, but you don't get to do that in your own strength. As a matter of fact, you can't do that in your strength. You have to do it through the power and person of Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf. Who gets the glory? He gets the glory. And that's Paul's ultimate concern. And that's why we have to have a correct understanding, a true knowledge. What was at stake here in the city of Colossae? What was this heir that was threatening the church? Well, take it back a little bit and put it in its historical context. In the year 200 B.C., there was a Roman ruler by the name of uh, Antiochus, And Antiochus, actually, to maintain control, a lot of old or ancient rulers would do this. When they had conquered a certain part of the world, they would take a portion of its population and they would relocate them to another part of the empire. And that would defeat kind of nationalism that would rise up. And he had done this in this part of the world. He had taken a number of Jews and had relocated them to what is now Turkey, And there were many of them living in the city of Colossae. So what you had in the city of Colossae were two kind of culture clashes. One clash was those from the Roman Empire influenced by by Greek philosophy. That was still a, a large part of their thinking. And then you had Jews who wanted to emphasize ceremonialism, legalism, and so forth. And what was arising in Colossae was a heresy that wed these two things. For those who were coming from the, the Greek philosophical perspective, they denied the humanity of Christ. They also denied the deity of Christ, and they denied the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. And all through this epistle, if you understand the background, Paul's correcting that. He's explaining how Christ is sufficient. He's perfect. He is complete. So he corrects that error and strengthens the church to stand against it. The Jewish influence in this philosophy was that they embraced circumcision for necessary salvation. They embraced a form of asceticism for salvation as well. And they also embraced the dietary laws and observance of ceremonies for salvation. So both aspects of this Colossian heresy were saying you need something other than Christ, something in addition to Christ to be perfected unto godliness. Many have argued that the theme of Colossians should be, and rightly so, is the sufficiency of Christ. Complete, whole, perfect on our behalf. And we'll see this further as we look at Paul's prayer and the characteristics of a life that truly knows Christ. When we look at this aspect of a, a, a true or real knowledge, this is what Paul is praying for, that we would be filled up to understand this with wisdom, with comprehension, and allow it then to guide us in our pursuit of godliness. Let me just illustrate why Christ is sufficient. Our text 
is going to end at verse 14 of chapter 1. But what Paul begins to do in verse 15 and following is he just begins to unfold the person of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have what? First place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What's Paul's focus here? It's the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Okay? How foolish for us to think the true Christ, who he just defined and characterized, could somehow be complimented by our small efforts that we can do more than Christ can to perfect us, to reflect him, to imitate him. Aren't you grateful that you have a Lord and Savior who's sufficient, who's all-powerful, who's perfect, who's complete? He says here, the fullness of God himself. Paul's purposely emphasizing the completion or the sufficiency of Christ. He goes on to illustrate this in chapter 2, just so you understand what he's, he's attempting to, to answer and, and serve the Colossian church to combat. If you look at chapter 2, what does he say? <clears throat> that, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, Resulting in what? A true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to what? Christ, the true knowledge of who Christ is. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. 
You think you can outdo Christ? (laughs) There's no way. And this precious, perfect, sufficient Savior and Lord has been revealed to us through the Word of God that we might know Him. As Paul says later, that we might know Him and His sufferings, meaning the way that we are to walk in the sinful, imperfect world, that we might live a life that brings honor to Him. This is Paul's prayer. And what I want to focus on, though, is what Paul includes in this prayer is an expectation of how a true knowledge of Christ should characterize the Christian's walk. And we begin to see in the next few verses six characteristics of a Christ-knowing walk. Number one, he says this in verse 10. This is the outcome of true knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. So that, there's an expectation here on Paul's part. He's praying Again, not just that they possess a knowledge of who Christ is and affirm that, but what? It would produce in them a life that imitates Christ. The so that here is the purpose statement. God, do this so that the Colossians will live in this way. They'll walk in this way. And how are we to walk? Number one, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The first characteristic of a Christ-knowing walk is a worthy walk. Now, when we use the word worthy in English, a lot of us uh, tend to think in terms of worthy means deserving. Deserving. And that's not how the word is used here. It shouldn't be understood in the English language. What worthy actually means here is consistent with, equal to, just like. We can't earn or merit anything in our own strength. So it's not that we will walk in a way that we've earned or deserved something. That's not the principle here. The principle is it's the standard to which we're called. And that is to live a life that is consistent with or equal to or just like Christ himself. Paul, again, emphasizes the same principle in other epistles. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, where he says that the Thessalonians, he's writing, should walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Ephesians 4.1, he writes, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he expands in verses 20 through 23 that says, should be in the likeness of God. So the principle here is that we would walk in a manner that is consistent with the way that Christ walked. Again, Paul writes in Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. How dare we, in our own strength, think that we can aspire to walk like Christ walked? Imagine if the standard were given but not the means to accomplish that. And that's why Paul's prayer is so important. Who does the filling up? It's God himself through the testimony of his word and his spirit. 
that strengthens us so that we can live a life like Christ. We have been rescued, brothers and sisters, from false teaching, false religions, the world's philosophies that want to suggest ultimately man is good or good enough that he can achieve something in his own ability to please or satisfy God's standard. We don't have to live with that anxiety every day. We have to claim the promise that we are going to be made complete. We will be filled up. And the more we grow and dedicate our lives to a pursuit of the true knowledge of who Christ is. We study his life. We submit our life to him. We live our life in accord with the principles and the instructions that he's given us, with the power of the Holy Spirit. We will be able, with each given day, to walk more worthy or consistent with Christ himself. Is that your ambition each day? Just make sure your ambition isn't rooted in your own ability. Okay. He goes on to give us a second characteristic of a Christ-knowing walk. Not only is it consistent with the life of Christ, he says, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. The second characteristic is a fruitful walk. The idea of bearing fruit is another often used uh, principle it's language we're familiar with from Scripture. We see this in Psalm chapter 1, where the psalmist describes the man who meditates on the Word of God day and night. He will be like what? A tree planted by the rivers of water that does what? It bears fruit. It produces fruit. There's an outcome of the person who knows the testimonies of God, who submits their life to the truth of God, who, who walks in accord, not with the sinful patterns of the world, but in accord with the biblical principles and the truth of God. Another place we see the language of fruit used is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, that describes the fruit of the Spirit. You know this well. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are all expressions of godly character. Demonstrate in the context of human relationships, just as God demonstrates them towards us. If you go to Galatians chapter 5 and you see the, the context there, what precedes verse 13 is description of how people live in the flesh. Envying, drunkenness, divisiveness, descriptions of conflict and evil, all motivated by what? Self-seeking, self-love at the expense of others. The love of God seeks the good of those that he places his love upon at great cost, even the cost of his beloved son on our behalf. It's a selfless love. James speaks of fruit bearing in this way. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering. And he adds, without hypocrisy. I think that's really important. This is, in essence, I think, Paul's concern for the Colossians is that they don't just know the truth of who Christ is and and what his expectations are for uh, obedience and, and love, but to live it out so that the life has a life of integrity, not hypocrisy. The greatest accusation made against believers is what? 
we don't practice what we preach. And the world points to us and accuses us of hypocrisy. But what James is saying is that those who bear fruit from the wisdom that comes from above, the truth, the true knowledge, produces in us a life of integrity, not hypocrisy. But Christ said it himself in John chapter 15, verse 8. By this, is my, fa- by this my Father is glorified. What? He's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See that completing aspect of Christ himself? It's not just that you claim to be my disciples and followers, but that you actually live in a fashion that demonstrates that you truly have had your life transformed, and it's my power at work in you. You live a life that is consistent with my character and my teaching. And so the second characteristic of a Christ-knowing walk is that we bear fruit consistent with Christ. Number three, a growing walk. A growing walk. We see there in verse 10, the expectation is that we would Increase in the knowledge of God. The idea of increasing has this idea of expanding or enlarging, or let me put it this way, to be more fully realized, reaching the maximum potential that you can achieve. What does Paul mean here? And, and, And just to be honest with you, these six characteristics are just six different ways to say the same thing. What is the reaching of our maximum spiritual potential? Again, is to be formed into the image of Christ. This is God's purpose and intention for us. And so he's saying there should be evidence that you are growing more and more like him. We see this concept In other places in the New Testament, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's a maturation. It's making progress towards uh, full development. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul writes there, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Is he saying here just that your knowledge grows? No, he's saying that your love grows. It's that fruit bearing. It's that demonstration. It's the the living out of the transformed life and mind. Ephesians 3.19, Paul says, or prays that we might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Is yours a growing walk? Do you see yourself realizing more fully Christ-likeness in your thoughts, your actions, your choices, your ambitions, your priorities? You're probably focused like I am in all the areas that you fall short. But God's promises are true. It's appropriate that we recognize those places where he is at work in our life and growing us and find encouragement in that regard. 
We know this is the case and should expect it because this is what Paul said earlier, didn't he? In verse 6, he says, The gospel produces this, that you're constantly bearing fruit and increasing, okay, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Another aspect of this is not only do we need to look for and, and recognize and expect that, that we're going to grow and mature, but we should offer words of encouragement when we see that in others. Yes, we're called to exhort, we're called to warn, we're called to correct, for sure. But we're also called to encourage. And one of the ways, biblically speaking, that you encourage is not flattery. You look great today, you're my best friend, or however else you might find words of flattery. Those things may be true. But what we're to do biblically is to recognize purposefully where we see God growing somebody and come alongside them, put our arm around them, Give them a word of encouragement that says, you know what, I see you growing in this way. It's one of the areas of ministry I think we do very poorly in the church. And yet, what we need from one another is somebody who reminds us, yep, God is accomplishing what he promised to accomplish. Hey, you know what? I know you might be a little hot-headed, but I saw you exercise self-control in that conversation. Okay? Or um, you might be anxious, and you've been more devoted in prayer so that you're not anxious. And it's noted that you're not characterized by anxiety, but thankfulness for what God has given to you. Or it might be in the area of generosity and you're very fearful to share what you have and you purposely sacrifice to give to meet a need of somebody else. When you observe that in somebody's life, point to that. Or if you hear about it secondhand, go back and tell that person. Sometimes it's the recipient of your love that's blessed. And I try to make a note. I don't do this certainly perfectly, but I'm trying to make sure if I hear somebody share with me how, how God used a person in their life, that when I see that person, I point that out to them. Said, I want you to know, you've been a blessing. God's used you in this regard. So let's renew our own commitment to the ministry of encouragement with this expectation that we should be growing in, in Christ's likeness. The fourth characteristic of a Christ-knowing walk is this, this is a strong walk. Paul says in verse 11, the so that, the effect, the consequences, is that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And I love how Paul qualifies this. The idea of being strengthened, the Greek word there is a mouthful, it's dunamumenoi. And what it means is ultimate power, whose source and provider is God himself. So the idea here is the strength that is being provided for us to walk this way is rooted in the power of God. Now you think about that for a moment. Is he not so powerful that he created the heavens and the earth? He brought life into existence. He keeps all things in order from microscopic organisms to the full extent of the universe keeps everything in its orbit. 
And we could go on with endless examples of the power of God himself. And then when you think about the power and victory over the kingdom of Satan and prevailing over the rule of sin, that same power is made available to us. Now, he qualifies this word strengthened here by saying, strengthen how? According to his glorious might. It's interesting, the combination of glorious and might together. Uh, glorious, it's, it's the word doxa, and it refers to the full manifestation of God's attributes. It's his glory. So again, God is the source of the strength, but it's a strength when put on display that glorifies him. Isn't that a great idea? Yes, it's for your personal benefit, but there's something much more important at stake in God's strengthening work is it brings honor to him. Because everybody should know, right? Your family knows, your best friends know. You don't have the ability to get your act together, to live everything out perfectly and spiritually. And so when they see God at work perfecting you, they know it's God, right? And I say that a little bit facetiously, but it's, it's true. When we hear those words of affirmation of encouragement where we see growth in our lives, it forces everyone to look to God as the source of the strength to live in a way that is so radically different than what we were prone to live in our own sin and flesh. All right. I want you to note that Paul's not just praying this with an expectation. He's praying for the Colossians. He's praying it out of personal experience. Look at chapter 1, verse 28. It says, We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man, and there's our idea again, complete, full, in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to my power. No. Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You think about Paul's life in ministry? Difficult? Read the book of 2 Corinthians where he outlines his sufferings, the persecutions, the hardships, the perseverance that characterizes his life. Who does he give credit to here? The strength of God, the power of God that worked within him. Paul can work in Paul's life in such a radical way. Don't you think he could work in your life? You bet. You bet. Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, praying there that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Well, the fifth characteristic of a Christ-knowing walk is not just walking worthy, or bearing fruit, or growing, or being strong, but it's a persevering walk. A persevering walk. He goes on to say, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. And the word joyously goes with that phrase there, of being steadfast and patient. Joyous endurance and perseverance through trials in this life is what 
Paul is saying. It's faith in the promises and ultimate victory of God and what he will provide on behalf of the believer, which generates hope in our lives. The focus is not limited to the immediate effects of, of fallenness and overcoming, but they, they look up and out to who God is and what he will ultimately accomplish in his people. The idea of steadfastness here is this idea of being fixed on the path, not being swayed by the influences or the winds or the temptations that come, and being steadfast that you might persevere through those circumstances to complete the journey. And so the idea here with steadfastness is persevering through circumstances to the end. He uses the word patience, though, and the idea of patience is persevering in the midst of circumstances. Do you understand the, the difference of, of perspective there? Steadfastness has the expectation that you're going to persevere through to the end. But you need to have patience in the moment. Okay? And both of these are available to us because of Christ and what he's accomplished for us. You know the text well, don't you? James chapter 1. We could take a look there, but it reminds us of the same principle, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, steadfastness. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Isn't it interesting? James is saying the same thing. You persevere to the end, you will be made complete. Okay? You will be perfected. God is going to accomplish his aim in your life. Hmm. If that's true, should we not be characterized by joy in the midst of those hardships and trials? If we know that's the assured promise outcome of persevering, you bet. It's not about your immediate circumstances. See, see, happiness or absence of happiness is rooted in circumstances. Joy is rooted in faith and assurance of God's promise, perfection, and completion. Okay? And if the trial is producing in you a greater holiness, a greater humility, a greater love and compassion. Isn't that Christ-like? All right. He continues on. Not only a worthy walk, a fruitful walk, a growing walk, a strong walk, a persevering walk, but a grateful walk. What does he say here? Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Giving thanks is a characteristic of the Christian who understands that all they have is undeserved and is provided by God's loving and gracious hand. What does Paul write in other places? Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Later in the book of Colossians, Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Later in chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Could go on and on and cite 
the testimony of thanksgiving, not only by the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, the psalmist, and so forth. Thanksgiving should characterize the life that has the assurance that we're going to be made complete in Christ. Here, what are we to be thankful for? Well, the undeserved riches of an inheritance that we'll share with the saints. This is what is offered to us at the end of verse 12. What else is offered to us? Undeserved rescue from the domain of darkness. What else? He's brought us into his kingdom. It's undeserved redemption and rest. And the forgiveness of sins. Yes, we have much to be thankful for. Not only in our past, but in the promised future. And so Paul prays for this church that they would not be tempted by the heresies and philosophies, the man-centered teachings, where someone wants to add something to what the Bible teaches about Christ. Someone wants to add something to what we need to do to accomplish salvation and to be made complete. He says, Christ is all that you need. Live in light of the truth of who Christ is. And if you do, if you are filled up with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, then you'll walk in a worthy manner, a fruitful manner, a growing manner, a strong manner, a persevering manner, and a grateful manner. Be encouraged. This is God's purpose for your life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder from the loving pen of the Apostle Paul, who prayed on behalf of the church of Colossae that they would not be led astray by error, by confusion, by teaching that would cause them to rely on anything but the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that that work is not just the work of salvation, but it's the work of sanctification, the work of completing us, that we may be made complete in Christ. And we look forever forward to eternity where we can fellowship with him unhindered, undistracted, not tempted by the things of the flesh. And so we thank you for your promise to complete that work which you began. And may it be more true of us tomorrow and the day after that we walk like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.